are listening to Australia's tax news podcast, Tax Talks. Welcome to episode five of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson. Today's topic is the tax residency of individuals and companies, a contentious issue with confusing rules and even more confusing case law. I'm talking to Robert Campbell, who is a tax advisor and also a lecturer at the Tax Institute. I started the interview asking Robert why residency matters. Well, taxpayers have to declare income in Australia from all sources worldwide if they are an Australian resident taxpayer. However, should they be a non-resident or a foreign resident, they only have to declare income which is sourced from Australia. Well, an individual, first and foremost, will be an Australian tax resident if they reside in this country. Now, that opens up quite a lot of issues and quite a lot of questions because legislation does not provide any guidance as to what is resides. What does that mean? So we have to turn to case law to ascertain whether or not someone is residing in Australia or they're residing elsewhere. Now, on top of that, the legislative definition of a resident is expanded beyond someone who resides in Australia to include someone who is domiciled in Australia, someone who spends more than one half of an income year in Australia, or someone who is a member of a prescribed government super scheme. It's actually one test is how it's written, but it's an extended definition. But we can, we can drill it down to there are four tests. But how it is actually written is as you are a resident if you reside here, And that includes someone who spends more than half the year here, always domiciled, always a member of a government super scheme. Now, looking at what is resides, so as I mentioned, that this is all driven through case law. So we have to go back and look at hundreds of years worth of case law and worth of uh, decisions to ascertain what are the factors and determinants that the courts have decided significant in ascertaining whether or not someone resides in a location or not. And we can probably sum them up as being the intention or purpose of present, family, business or employment ties, maintenance and location of assets, social and living arrangements, and the period of physical presence. Now, these are outlined in a couple of rulings that the tax office have issued over the years. One is TR 98-17, And the other is a very old ruling, IT 2681. That said, the factors which are summarised and which I just highlighted, the tax office will consider many more issues than just that. Now, looking at your family, business, employment ties, what we're looking for in ascertaining someone's residency is how strong are their family, their business or their employment ties to Australia? So someone who lands in Australia, they have no family here, they don't have a job, they don't have a business here, less likely to be considered a resident on this point alone. Meanwhile, someone who has their family here, they've got their employment here or they've got their business here, strengthens the argument that they may be an Australian resident, they may be residing here. 
it doesn't mean that's a factor that will conclude that they are resident or not. It's just a factor to consider, mind you. The next factors to consider is the maintain, maintenance and location of assets. So if someone's maintaining a home in multiple locations, again, that might be an indicator that they're residing in a different location to where they're presently living because they still have another home back home. It's that home that they still call or refer to as their home. They're just living in another jurisdiction for the time being versus someone who has packed up everything and completely relocated to another location. Social and living arrangements is looking at how well someone has integrated into their new jurisdiction. Have they joined clubs? Do they have memberships of um, political organisations? Do they have a partner? Um, yeah, do they have a partner? Do they have a you know, girlfriend or boyfriend that they might have met? That can be a bit of an indicator. Are they living with that person as well? What is their living arrangements in terms of do they have a fixed place to live or are they backpacking. Yeah, backpacking, moving around from here to there? And the final factor is the period of physical presence. And the general consensus is the longer someone is in, a, in one location, the more likely they are residing in that location. Now, again, these are the five main factors to consider. Not all factors are going to fall on one side of the argument or the other generally. Most will fall, you know, some will fall on one side of the argument and some will fall on the other. And so what we then have to do is weigh up each factor and how, it, how it's being concluded to try and ascertain, well, where is someone residing at this point in time? So we might have factors that support both arguments and we have to give weight to one argument over another or one factor over another to try and get a conclusion. And this is where it gets very tricky because there is no guidance as to what weighting is reasonable. So it's very subjective. It's very grey. And that's a good thing and a bad thing in tax. It's good as a tax practitioner. You can always say you're never truly wrong. It's also difficult because you can never say you're truly right either by the same token. Now, moving away from where someone resides, we go into this so-called domicile test. So remember how I mentioned that the definition of a resident includes someone who resides and someone who is domiciled in Australia. Now, taking a step back, what is domicile? Well, domicile is nothing more than an old archaic legal concept. You have your domicile of birth. And that is, you take on the domicile of your father's domicile when you were born. Now, there are some modifications to, the, to this concept. If your father was deceased or unknown at the time of your birth, you would, you would take on the uh, domicile of your mother instead. That's a very black and white test. What does happen, though, is that a domicile can change. There is a concept of a domicile of choice. Now, this is not a choice that you make by filling in a form or making some form of formal declaration to somebody. This is by choice as in you've chosen to live your life in this way and that has in effect changed your domicile. So your domicile could change without you even knowing that it has just by sheer conduct of your day-to-day -day life. Now, what we're looking for when someone has changed their domicile is that someone has pretty much cut their ties from their original domicile or their previous domicile 
in favour of the new location in which they're living in. doesn't mean that they have to sever every single tie, but it means that for the, for the foreseeable future, that person has no intention of returning other than just for a holiday or to visit family members and friends back to their previous domicile, that for all intents and purposes, their future is going to be in this new location. It doesn't mean they have to have bought their plot, but it does mean that they aren't intending on living anywhere else in the foreseeable future. Residency cases that make it to the AAT or the federal court, do they usually go through the residency test or does the domicile come up a lot? Is it kind of an arcade concept that rarely ever finds practical application or does this concept of domicile still come into weigh in when you, when you decide on residency? Look, I, I'm not aware of domicile being of significance or importance in any other area, unfortunately, than just taxation. Admittedly, I'm a bit narrow-minded because I'm a taxation advisor. That's what I do. We don't often see fights in court about someone's domicile because it is less subjective. Someone's domicile of birth is what it is. Their domicile of, of choice. choice. Okay, it does have a bit of a theme about it in terms of residing, but it's, 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 it's more than residing. You can reside somewhere with an intention of going back to where you were living previously. But when you've changed your domicile, it's because you no longer have that intention of going back. So it, it's a much stronger position that we can develop to work out if someone has chosen, in inverted commas, a new domicile. Now, that said, the domicile test doesn't just stop there. It is not just it is where you are domiciled. So if you're domiciled in Australia, you're a resident, unless you have a permanent place of abode outside of Australia. Initially, if you're an Australian domiciled person and you decide to go and live in the UK or New York or wherever else for two years, you're still domiciled in Australia, which would mean technically you'd still be a resident in Australia for tax purposes. What if you sold your house in Australia? You can sell everything. You might not have even have a house, but if you had the intention of coming back, Oh, okay. then you haven't chosen a new domicile. That, mm-hmm. that would be a, probably a rather unfair outcome for, any, for anyone that does decide to take a couple of years off and work in another location. They might not even know how long they're going for, but they do know they'll come back eventually. They, they want to see the world. They want to work in different places. They want to ultimately set up their family and their future in Australia, but it might take another five or ten years for them to do so. So we do have this concept that if you're domiciled in Australia but have a permanent place of abode outside of Australia, then the domicile test doesn't apply to you. You can get out of the domicile test despite being domiciled here. And this is where we have a bit more you know, sub- subjectivity. This is where we're more likely to have an argument about whether or not someone has a permanent place of abode offshore or not, as opposed to whether or not they're domiciled is within Australia. In terms of domicile and in terms of permanent place of abode, again, we have an old ruling IT 2650 that does consider permanent place of abode. In essence, we're looking at some sort of permanent setting in which you live day to day. So not like a little backpacker's motel that you move around from from time to time, or you set up camp at various farms, you know, picking fruit or other things at various farms, we're looking at something that's a bit more permanent than that. So it's not very hard to get out of the domicile test if you are an Australian domicile 
person who's gone offshore. You've set a home, you're renting a home, or you've bought a home, or your employer has given you somewhere to live, then most likely you have a permanent place of abode, and therefore the domicile test no longer applies to you. Now, looking at the 183-day test, or the physically in Australia for more than one half of a year test, again, there's not normally as much argument about the 183-day test. It's pretty black and white. You're either here or you're not here. Exactly. You're either in Australia or you're not. And the government knows where everyone or whether anyone is in Australia or not through immigration records, customs records. So they're on file. The tax officers know exactly the days you entered Australia and the days you leave. And the day of departure and the day of arrival counts as a day. So if you arrive five minutes after midnight or you left five minutes after midnight, that will be an extra day counted, which could make a big difference if you're on the cusp of 183 days. Again, the 183-day test does have a way out. A bit like the domicile, there is a way to get out of it. And that is that it doesn't apply to anyone who has a usual place of abode outside of Australia and they have no intention of taking up Australian residence. Now, I guess the classic example would be... A visiting professor. Yeah, visiting professor. I would say one that's probably even more commonplace in the country is you've got someone whose parents live offshore. We've got a couple who've had a baby, and a family member, a parent, comes from overseas and lives in Australia for a time being to help them raise that child so they can... Yeah, the two people can continue to work and earn an income and have someone to assist. And that's a very common scenario I, I, I see out there in real life. If that incoming parent is in the country for more than six months in any one year, then that technically would mean they're an Australian resident. And that would be a significant problem if they have significant assets overseas or significant income overseas, that Australia is now going to put their hand out for their supposed fair share of Hence why, again, we have this way out, that if you're coming into Australia, but you do have a usual place of abode, you have another place that you call home, it's still there waiting for you, you're just not there at the moment. You're just in Australia for some other purpose. It might be longer than half a year, but you don't intend to really stay here long term. You're You're here for that intention and you're going back. You'll be here for six or 12 months to help with a, with a, with a, with a grandchild and you'll go back overseas. So there, there is a way around that. And again, there is some guidance from the tax office if you need it on what is a usual place of abode. Is it usual place of abode or permanent place of abode? Or are they two different concepts? Two different concepts. So permanent place of abode for domicile, usual place of abode for 183 day test. Oh, okay. So 183 day test looks at you usually live somewhere else, notwithstanding that you're living somewhere now. Mm. You might have a settled home in Australia, but really you don't want to be living here. You're here to help someone out or you're here for a certain purpose. You might be here for a long holiday even. You might be here for a work assignment, but everything is back home. Your life is back home. Everything's sitting there, your favourite chair and everything's still sitting there. And you have all the intention of going back there, but for some reason life has dragged you into Australia temporarily. Government super funds that can also lead into residency rules? Yeah, so created to capture Australian high commission staff and into the Australian tax net. 
Exactly. Mm. So that if you're the ambassador to Germany or Italy or Korea or anywhere, that you're still treated as an Australian resident for tax purpose. Um, so it's a very narrow test, but anyone who is a public servant should always double check, is their super scheme one that falls within this test or not? You know, if they're a Defence Force member or a politician or something else, that's a point to consider. Temporary resident is someone who is a resident under our tax law. However, the nature of their arrival in Australia is of a temporary nature. So, for instance, they're on... Um, 457 visa. Yeah, or what might not no longer be a 457 visa, whatever the government decides to call it. Mm. They're on some sort of business or employment visa. Mm. They might be here for a time being. And that's completely linked to the visa. It's very black and white. If you're on this visa... You're a temporary resident. There's no if, question if about you're, it. If you're on some sort of visa that gives you... Temporary uh, residence. Yeah, some, sort of, some sort of temporary right to live in Australia, then you're a temporary resident. Mm-hmm. Where that changes is where you look at applying for permanent residency. Now, there is also one very interesting... So as soon as you apply for permanent residency, you also become a a resident and are no longer a temporary resident? You you cease to become a temp or you cease to be a temporary resident at that point in time because you're now stating your intention is to stay here for longer. I see. So now all your income is taxable in Australia. Yes. So and 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 that's what we didn't touch on is what's the difference between a, a temporary resident and a resident? A temporary resident does not have to declare their foreign Income. income, except for foreign employment income that still has to be declared in Australia, oh, but all, all other foreign income does not. So if we bring in some skilled labour from overseas, one of the things that would discourage someone from coming in from overseas to assist Australian businesses and organisations is fair enough if I have to pay Australian tax and I can ask for a remuneration package that covers the additional taxes I might have to pay by working in Australia But if I then have to pay taxes on all of my other income, then it's not worth it for me to come to Australia. So these laws were brought in so that it was Australia wasn't a jurisdiction where skilled labour was reluctant to come to because of our tax laws. And that's why they introduced the temporary resident. Mm. Ah, okay. That if this person didn't come to Australia we wouldn't get the we wouldn't get a share of their their non-Australian income anyway. So we're happy just to get a share of their Australian mm-hmm. sourced income while they're here. So temporary residence is a relatively new concept. When when was relatively it introduced? New. Was um, it introduced in the nineties or early two thousand? As the mid two thousand two thousand five two thousand six around oh, about okay. that time. So recently. Recent. Two things I'll I'll, I'll raise. Um, firstly, temporary resident. If you happen to come from the other side of the Tasman, you are in real luck because... So if you come from Tasmania? You come from, no, New Zealand. Ah, New Zealand. New Zealand. We like to think of Tasmania as a different country, but it's not. That's why I was so surprised. Um, But New Zealand. Now, New Zealand, Australia's got very strict visa rules and very few, in fact, only New Zealand residents are the only, or New Zealand passport holders, are the only ones that can enter into Australia without arranging a visa. That's very unusual. Most countries have some sort of visa to allow you to enter for a holiday or anything, but not Australia. But they get a visa on arrival, don't they? They get a visa on arrival. Yeah. But that visa counts as a temporary visa for the temporary resident rules. Ah, okay. So a New Zealander coming in is a temporary resident. 
as long as they don't become a permanent resident or a citizen, marry or take on a spouse who is an Australian resident, they will forever and a day be treated as a temporary resident. Very concessional treatment. Yeah, which, you... means, which means they are taxed on, on resident rates, so they get the 18,200 tax-free threshold mm -hmm. and are not taxed on their income in New Zealand. Not taxed on their income worldwide. Yes. Now, if, if this person may have come from, say, Hong Kong, and, and again, this is, this is quite common in my experience, someone might come from Hong Kong or China, into New Zealand first up, spend two gets or three a, years there. Gets a New Zealand passport. And then, yep, gets mm. a New Zealand passport and then comes to Australia. Now, they may have significant assets back over in Hong Kong or China or wherever. And the income from those assets can be derived tax-free if they enter Australia via becoming a New Zealand citizen first. Mm. They, they would still be taxed in Hong Kong or China, though, wouldn't they? Look, they would still be, but Hong Kong is considered a low-tax jurisdiction. Okay. China is not. But how they choose to conduct their affairs over there is, is you know, yeah. um, up, to not, them. Yeah, up to themselves. Residency, so taking a step back and looking at where you reside, you are a resident from the point that you begin to reside in Australia. If that's, pick a date at random, the 10th of May, that's the 10th of May is you're a resident and prior to that you're a non-resident. Similar thing with the domicile, if your domicile changes at a certain point in time, you become an Australian resident at that point in time or cease to be an Australian resident at that point in time. With the 183-day test, there is a bit of confusion. Initially, the courts had concluded that if you fell into the 183-day test, you would be deemed a resident for the full financial year. And I think that was the Gregory versus DCT case? Yes, back in the 1930s. Yeah, now, 1937. That has been superseded somewhat by a um, border review decision back in the mid-80s, which suggested that a person will only be resident for the time that they are in Australia. So they might have more than six months in the year, but for the part of the year that they're not in Australia, they won't be a resident. So there is, there is a bit of confusion there. Look, a court case is always stronger than a border review or an AAT oh, okay. case. Yes. Mm -hmm. But we can take some guidance there that this is a point of confusion. Again, it's not it's not a black and white decision. It is grey. And we need to look at the facts on a case-by-case -case basis. Mm -hmm. These are the resident routes for individuals. Companies? So with a company, we've got two main tests. The first one is very easy. Any company that's incorporated in Australia is an Australian resident company, full stop. No, no exception to that whatsoever. No matter where they do business in the nope, world. No, nope. you incorporate in Australia, you are an Australian taxpaying company and that will never change. The next way to fall into an Australian resident as a company, and it's effectively two tests, or it seems like it's two tests. And so it requires you to firstly be a company that carries on business in Australia and then either have your central management and control within Australia or have the voting power controlled by Australian residents. Where I said it looks like it's two tests, so firstly have to be carrying on a business here and then you have to meet one of those next two tests. Your central and management and control is in Australia or you're controlled by Australian resident shareholders. Where it gets confusing though is when we start looking at some case law as to what is carrying on a business and what is central management and control. And 
the best case that we can look at is the Malayan shipping case. Now, Malayan shipping case, it was a taxpayer that had an Australian director and Australian shareholder, but its operations were limited to just holding or owning, I believe it was a barge, which was leased in waters off Malaysia somewhere. So its 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 activities were somewhat passive. It was just leasing some type of heavy machinery. It had an Australian director and an Australian shareholder, same person, sole director, sole shareholder. He argued that the company was a non-resident. Because they were doing business outside of Australia. Well, they weren't doing business in Australia. Hmm. That the barge was located offshore. There were no decisions being made in Australia. There was no activities. There was... There was nothing. There's no shop. There's no warehouse. There's no factory. There's no mine. There's nothing. And they were incorporated outside of Australia. They were incorporated offshore. What the court concluded, though, was that if your central management and control is in Australia, and that wasn't in dispute so much, that the director was making the decisions, how few there may have been, there probably weren't very many decisions given it was just a leasing a piece of machinery. But he was a resident. He was a resident and he was making those decisions in, in Australia. Australia. The court concluded that the act of making central management and control decisions is a business activity in itself. And so by making those decisions within Australia, the company is therefore carrying on a business in Australia. So this is where I said it looked like it was two tests. You've got to be carrying on a business in Australia, then have your central management and control in Australia, but after Malayan shipping, it became the same. Became one and the same. If your central management and control is in Australia, then by default, you're carrying on business in Australia. Now, we had a ruling from 2004 that then departed from that a little bit and drew, drew a distinction between passive style operations and more active style operations. So, if you had a company that was more passive in nature, then yes, Malayan shipping applies. But if you had a real business, you had a shop or a factory or an office or a warehouse or something, you had a real business with real day-to-day management, then the Malayan shipping case shouldn't, shouldn't, shouldn't change, shouldn't apply to you. At least that was the case until earlier in 2017 when that 2004 ruling was withdrawn. It, to date, hasn't been replaced by a finalised ruling there is a draft ruling, though, on the topic, TR 2017-D2. This draft ruling does a complete backflip on this position. Again, the distinction that the previous ruling had taken between Malayan shipping and how that applied to passive operations versus active operations has, not, has been removed from this new draft ruling. So an active operation will still be subject to the same consideration of as to where its central management and control is, not just where its day-to-day management and its operational management and control is located. So again, if you have a company in Australia or a non-resident company, an operation that's outside of Australia, but its directors are Australian, so this is a very common scenario where you have an Australian company and it sets up a subsidiary overseas. Its board might be comprised of the Australian directors, and maybe one local director, but most decisions, if most of the decisions are made in Australia, 
then its central management and control will be in Australia and therefore it's carrying on business in Australia and therefore it's an Australian resident company. So we've got this subsidiary making money offshore that's now going to be treated as an Australian resident. Whereas under the previous 2004 ruling, as long as their operations were more active in nature, they had an actual underlying business there, not just a passive operation, they could continue to be treated as a non-resident. But not anymore. Not, not under this new draft ruling. And this new draft ruling is a result of Bywater. It is a result of the Bywater decisions. Now, the decisions from Bywater... For mine, the Bywater case is interesting and it's not. It's interesting because of the effort that the ultimate controller went through to try and distance himself from his group of companies, his group of offshore companies, but it's not particularly interesting from the point of view of the decision. The decision is not surprising in my view based upon the circumstances as presented in the judgments. The, the issue at play is that they were able to tie back the company's operations back to this Australian resident. The board of directors are simply rubbish stamping what they've been told to do, then there is a controller. There is a governing body that is essentially their... Not governing. Yeah, they're not governing. Then looking at where your shareholders live, and then you can also consider the nature of the business if that dictates where central management and control needs to be maintained. And look, the, the, the case study offered up in the draft ruling is a situation where you've got some sort of very large farm that is in the middle of absolutely nowhere and the very nature of the size and scale of this farm being in such a remote location requires that the central management and control probably have to be on site to make these high-level strategic decisions. Now, my suggestion or my thoughts are in this day and age with the technology we have, that's probably less of an issue than what it ever has been before, that you don't have to, in my view, live on a 20,000-hectare farm to be controlling it. You can control via remotely. You need people that you do need people there on the ground to run it. It doesn't mean they're making the high level strategic decisions, which is an act of central management and control. So nowadays, you would have more and more cases where the business operations and the central management and control are based at two different locations. Quite simply, yeah. And under the draft ruling, the draft ruling actually supports that notion that you can have central management and control separate to your day-to-day -day management in different locations. And it could mean that the company is carrying on business and is controlled in different locations. So it gets us to some very interesting... Combinations. Yeah, particularly when we're looking at some sort of a subsidiary of an Australian company abroad. It could be very easily, they could be inadvertently swept up as an Australian taxpayer when all their operations are overseas. Now, we've got to overlay that with double tax agreements and, and that provides a, you know, a fair amount of... Comfort and protection. Yeah. But what happens if your subsidiary is in Dubai or Hong Kong? We don't have double tax agreements with these jurisdictions. Fair enough if it's in 
what is considered a, a, a genuine tax haven like Cayman Islands or Jersey or Guernsey where there's not necessarily a lot of operations on the ground there. But if it is in, say, Dubai or Abu Dhabi or Hong Kong where you could have a very significant operation on the ground there and Australia does not have a double tax agreement with that jurisdiction. And then you could be paying tax twice. Yep. Well, maybe only once if it's in the UAE, for instance. They don't have a tax system pretty much over there. But in Hong Kong, you could be paying tax twice, which, again, you'd still be subject or allowed a foreign tax credit um, or a foreign tax offset, I should say. But that would be less than the tax you're paying in Australia since Hong Kong is tax law. Absolutely. And that has implications about how are you going to compete against your competitors when you're paying 30 cents in the dollar income tax and your competitors are paying 15 or 17. You know, you've got less money left over to retire debts and to expand. Uh, expand your business than what your competitors have. So it does does shift the balance of, I guess, competition in a way that you, we wouldn't have anticipated. Now, looking at who is the central management and control of a company, now, generally speaking, it is going to be the governing body, the board of directors or the committee of management, however so described, generally is the first port of reference. That is who is you know, the people charged with the responsibility of running and overseeing and making the high-level decisions in that company. However, Bywater has really opened up this notion of having an an external controller, someone who, on the face of it... Doesn't exist, it's nowhere. ...is not involved in the company's mm. affairs, but they actually are. They've just gone to great lengths to hide their involvement. And this is what opens up this notion of having a controller. And the draft ruling considers that, obviously, because the draft ruling is in response to the bywater decision looking at, well, what is a controller versus what is just someone who might influence a board of directors? And, and as we said, the, the key test is a controller is someone whose decisions and wishes will be followed by the governing body. Someone who's just an influencer might have their two cents worth, might say their opinion, might state what their wishes are, but the board of directors still consider what is the best course of action. Whether they follow that or not all times is, is another thing, but they still go through the process of this is what so-and-so over here has recommended. Are we as a board going to consider that or not? And if not, then what are we going to do? So, so that, that covers the uh, central management and control mm -hmm. test. Mm -hmm. So the second test is when you carry on business and you have the majority of shareholders in Australia, or, or not in Australia, but being Australian residents. Yep. Now, again, that that's probably, I'd say, a less subjective test than central management and control. I agree. The issue is trying to ascertain where your shareholders are. If your shareholder is some sort of company and you don't know where that company resides you might know where their registered office is but you don't know anything else about it and it's possible you might have shareholders you know very little about then it can be difficult to work through this test and sometimes you might have to make assumptions which might not turn out to be correct or the tax office might be able to garner more information 
on your shareholders than what you can. But all up, this test probably will lead to less confusion in practice than the essential management and control test? I would say so in, in, in the majority of cases. In a, in a typical private company scenario, the two are generally one and the same anyway. The governing body are the ones who are ultimately you know, owning the company as well. So this would be more relevant in a situation where you've got a very clear segregation of ownership and management of the company, not just day-to-day management, but your, your governing body, your, your long-term decision-making is kept separate from your ownership, hmm. which in most private companies isn't the case in my experience. So to, to conclude, we can say that residency is a very significant fundamental part of our tax system. It has a very significant outcome on one's taxation affairs and it is one of the most subjective areas in our tax system. It is so subjective and there's so many cases and you never know really where the dice is falling. Absolutely. And look, you know, one, of, one of the war stories that I have been through is clients when they want a certain outcome and you're trying to support them in deriving this outcome are sometimes selective in what they tell you. And sometimes what they tell you They mightn't have told the tax office, but the tax office has found out through other means. And the tax office has the ability to garner information from a whole wide range of sources that we as practitioners cannot get. And so if a client doesn't divulge facts to us... You give advice on only half the facts, whereas the ATO has all the facts or has a lot more facts. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, a client is, you know, they might have a very clear outcome that they want to achieve... But we need to stress to our clients that, yes, you have your outcome, but we can't just cherry-pick our facts to suit the outcome. We've got to look at everything because the tax office will, and the tax office will look at things that we don't consider. And so it is a learning process of going through residency disputes, I guess, that we learn new things and new factors to consider. And one, one thing that I learned many years ago was we were looking at a, um, an individual from uh, China. He was an Australian citizen but spent the majority of the time in China and he had very significant business affairs over there. He was trying to argue that he was a non-resident. And it was a, it was a very 50-50 call, truth be told, because his family were here but he had assets over there, he had assets here. It was 50-50. It was borderline. But one of the things that the tax office hit us with that left us dumbstruck, we didn't consider this, was they said, this taxpayer has a, a clear pattern. Over many years, every Chinese New Year, he spends in Australia. And we believe, given the significance, the cultural significance of Chinese New Year, that you would spend that in your home where your family is, and that's in Australia. We believe that's the tiebreaker that tips the balance from 50-50 call to, no, Australian resident. We didn't think of that. Mm. And we, we weren't provided with the records that proved that, that would have proved that anyway. Mm. The tax office got that from immigration records. And so now every, every Chinese New Year, you think of this client? Pretty much. I think of, <laughs> I think of every other one that, that has a residency issue one way or another with, with a particular outcome or a particular preference for a certain outcome. 
that might be spending their Chinese New Year in a different location to where they wish to be resident in. Every time you have a client from China, you ask them where they spend Chinese New Year. Absolutely. <laughs> and it's something which I do a bit of Googling with, with, with a client from any cultural background that I am not familiar with, which is most cultures. Mm. So you find out when their main public holidays are and where they are. It is something which I now do. I have to educate mm. myself in the cultures of, you know, whether it be one day it might be Colombian culture and the next day it's Venezuelan culture and the next day it's Taiwanese culture and the next day it's Japanese culture, etc. that I need to understand what are these significant days of the years in these cultures? And where are they? And, and where are they? And, and what is the custom? Is the custom you spend it with your family or is the custom mm. no one really gives a damn? Like mm. if someone tried to apply that to Australia Day, but, you know, some other jurisdiction applied that with Australia Day, well, that would be completely false. No one would come home for Australia Day specifically. Mm. It's not that significant of a day. And I'm, you know, other than Christmas or Easter, I can't think of too many other days that would be significant in Australia. But again, we have to, you know, that's something we can look at. Mm. Where would you spend Christmas? Would mm -hmm. you come home for Christmas? Okay, that tips the balance in. Welcome back. So this was a very brief overview of Australia's tax residency route. Complex topic. The Bywater case doesn't make it any less complex. A recent headline in the AFR declared that Australia's tax residency rules are broken. End of quote. The Board of Taxation is currently working on a report to the government looking at tax residency. So maybe, when you listen to this episode in two or three years, maybe all of this will have changed and we have a simple 183 days rule. Maybe. But mind you, the Board of Taxation Review is not initiated by the government, but is more born out of the frustration from the ground up. So we might still have a long way to go before anything changes. I would love to hear your thoughts. Please write if you can. And thank you for listening. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.